When it comes to the planets of our solar system, we all know that we have the four inner rocky planets, the asteroid belt, and then the four gas giant worlds with their own interesting planetary systems around them. Jupiter has its four enormous moons and dozens of others. Saturn has Titan, Iapetus, and many others, along with, again, a suite of smaller moons. Uranus doesn't have any very large moons, but it has five substantial ones, followed again by many others. But Neptune has an extremely small number of moons. It's very different. All of these planets seem to have been around since the very beginning of our solar system, and yet their histories, compositions, and atmospheric properties are all extremely different from one another. It makes you wonder what the diversity of planets out there in the universe is. This is something that we're now exploring the answer to. What is it? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. If you want to know anything about the universe near or far, the best way to do that is to ask questions about itself, is to take observations of it, is to make measurements of it, and ask it the right questions so you can find out what's going on with this. I'm so pleased to welcome to the program today Dr. Heidi Hamill of the Association of Universities for Research in Astronomy. Heidi is a specialist in planetary astronomy and in particular specializes in the planets of the outer solar system. System. Heidi, I'm so pleased to have you on the show, and welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Ethan. Awesome. Awesome. So when I think about the solar system, you know, I, I sort of struggle because I... I don't know how to classify these outer planets. I don't know how to make sense of them because on the one hand, I start thinking of a planet like Jupiter and I say, this is the most massive planet. It is so massive that it actually starts to undergo this thing called self-compression where Jupiter is extremely massive for its size. Uranus and Neptune are smaller, even though they still have those big hydrogen and helium envelopes around there. But what is Saturn like? Is Saturn like a scaled-up version of Uranus or Neptune? Or is it like a lightweight version of Jupiter, where it's almost the same size, but only a third of its mass? How do you look at the planets of the outer solar system? Well, to answer your question specifically, we think Saturn is more like a Jupiter than it is a Uranus and Neptune. Um, it's a it's a lighter, fluffier Jupiter, if you will. Um, I, I've seen that people talk about the fact that it's so light that if you had an ocean large enough, you could float Saturn in it. All right, uh, but I, you know. I don't think of Uranus and Neptune as actually being in the same class as Jupiter and Saturn. Um, we call, nowadays, we call Jupiter and Saturn the gas giants, but we have a different term for Uranus and Neptune. We call them ice giants. And it's not because they're cold. <laughs> um, ice in our parlance of planetary astronomy means things that are heavier than hydrogen and helium which are what Jupiter and Saturn are made of. 
But we think that Uranus and Neptune, under their hydrogen and helium atmospheres, actually have a substantial component of, of material in a, in a thick mantle that's made of possibly water, uh, probably some methane, and maybe other components as well that make these planets somewhat thicker and heavier, if you will, than their larger counterparts, Jupiter and Saturn. Now, this is this is really curious because if I if I look at this from a from a physics perspective, right? If I start thinking about okay, everything had to form from this pre-solar nebula that we had this big this big cloud of gas that collapsed, it formed a disk, um, and these you started to get these gravitational perturbations in the disk. So some of them started to grow, and it's pretty clear that the things that became both the ice giants and the gas giants, uh, for some reason, they started to grow faster than the inner rocky worlds of our solar system. So how come, and I don't know if this is something we can even say, how come whatever the seeds for these four largest planets in our solar system, um, how come Jupiter and Saturn grew to be these big, massive, I'll say fluffy planets with huge amounts of hydrogen and helium, but Uranus and Neptune seem to be smaller? Is this just a function of what these initial conditions must have been that led to Jupiter getting most of the mass that it grew faster? Or is there something else at play? Maybe they have different compositions because they form at different distances from the sun. Well, well, Ethan, if you had asked me that question 20 years ago, I would have had a great answer for you based on all the knowledge of our solar system. And we would have had a story about how the close-in planets uh, were hot, all that volatile material, the hydrogen, the helium, it's all blown away, leaving rocky planets close in. And then further out, beyond what we call the ice line, where, where water essentially uh, transitions from uh, being a, a liquid form to an ice form, that's where we'd have these giant fluffy planets. Um, and why Jupiter and Saturn are big and Uranus and Neptune are small, maybe it's because Uranus and Neptune are further and colder, and uh, and they didn't have time to really develop the thick atmospheres that Jupiter and Saturn did. And it all made a lovely story until we started finding planetary systems around other stars, of which we now have thousands, literally 4,000 and counting planetary systems. And what those systems tell us is that our simplistic story of the location determining the composition is just that, a story, <laughs> a, a convenient story that fit our solar system, but does not fit the other planetary systems we're seeing around other stars, where we find Jupiter's inside the orbit of Mercury in our solar system. How can that be? Well, they must have moved around. Um, we can find also in these other planetary systems, not just terrestrial planets like we have, and ice giants and gas giants, but an entire continuum of planets from the smallest to the largest including a very very populous class uh, that we call either super earths or sub neptunes um, that are somewhere between an earth and a neptune 
that we simply don't even have one in our solar system, um, you know, uh, at all. It's just missing from our solar system. I I like that a lot. I think this is really fascinating because it starts telling us, you know, when you when you grow up in a certain corner of the universe and you see the things around you, you you expect that you're going to be fairly typical and you expect that other things are going to look like you. And this really underlies to me the importance of looking for the things that aren't like us. This underlies for me the importance of saying, you know, we have assumptions um, that if we build in these assumptions and say, okay, we're going to look for small rocky planets nearby a star and large gas giants away from a star, obviously we're going to find them, but we would miss out. We would miss out on these big things that we've actually discovered, like gas giant or ice giant worlds that are interior to the frost line of their solar systems. Or we would miss out on what we believe to be right now the most common class of planets, which are somewhere in between the mass of Earth and the mass of a Uranus or Neptune. And these findings might lead us to believe, you know what, this story that you said you would have told me 20 years ago is probably not the full story. That's exactly right. Um, what we're learning as we're expanding our knowledge of planetary systems is, is that uh, understanding how a planetary system comes to be in general, and in particular, how it comes to be habitable, like our planetary system, is a complex mixture. Understanding the planets, understanding the star around which the planets form, and understanding the types of planets that you have forming in that system. So uh, this it's going to be fascinating over the next few decades as we build even bigger and better telescopes that are capable of truly characterizing these planets around other stars, learning about those planetary systems and helping us understand our own system. Because, frankly, we got one habitable planet right now, and we need to care a lot about it. So we need to understand what it is about our system that makes our planet habitable, and how can we keep it that way? Well, I think I think that's a huge question, right? For those of us who enjoy living on Earth, which is everyone except possibly the few thousand people who've who've managed to leave the surface of the Earth for for the realms of outer space, um, I think this is our home for the near and even relatively distant future. Um, when we when we talk about looking to the next generation of space telescopes or ground-based telescopes, I'm very excited by the fact that we're constructing 30-meter class telescopes like the Giant Magellan Telescope and the European Extremely Large Telescope. I'm optimistic that the 30-meter telescope is going to be constructed and will be operational and will join them by the end of next decade. Uh, and I'm extremely optimistic for a couple of observatories we have coming up being launched to space and in particular. I'm interested in the James Webb Space Telescope and W first. Will when we look at what we know today about the planets that are out there in the universe, and we look ahead one or two decades to what we expect to know, what are the big questions that that you would say keep 
planetary astronomers like you up at night thinking about dreaming about knowing that by that by 10 to 20 years from now we might have answers to what are these what are these big questions that we're reaching for right now wow there there's a couple of really big ones and and we we touched on them a little bit uh one of the biggest questions out there is are we alone that that are is a big one. Only... I I can't I can't it's go bigger big than that. <laughs> uh, you know, are we the only planetary system um, on which life has 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 formed and evolved, and and we're 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 poised to be able to answer that question for the first time in human history. It's a question that we've been asking for literally thousands of years. You know, as long as people have been debating such philosophical questions. This question has been one that's been right up there at the top of the queue. But now, now we are starting to truly understand what tools will be needed to actually answer that question. Um, and I, I want to be clear that the question of whether there's life out there is, is not necessary. It's not the same question of, as whether there's extraterrestrials who have visited the Earth in spaceships. You know, that's a very different question. When, when, when we planetary scientists are talking about looking for life elsewhere, we are looking at planets around other stars and we are asking the question, can we make measurements of those planets' atmospheres and measure chemistry in those planets' atmospheres that give us clues as to whether life is present there? Um, that is the only way that we currently can envision answering this question. We don't have warp drive. We cannot send spaceships to these other places. So we are looking at them remotely with large telescopes, and we want to be able to measure the chemical constituents because that's what gives us clues as to what the activity is. By activity, it could be trees. It could be bacteria. It could be a civilization that's creating a polluted atmosphere. Um, there are many different things that could drive chemistry in an atmosphere, but we need to be able to detect the chemistry. And to do that, we need a pretty big telescope. And we talked, um, we could talk about the ground-based telescopes, like the 30-meter class telescopes. Those will be very good for certain types of planets around certain types of stars. Uh, most specifically, they'll be good at finding the characteristics, characteristics of planets around faint stars, like M dwarf stars. But if we want to ask a question, can we find evidence for chemical disequilibrium on a planet like ours around a star like ours, a G-type star? For that, we need a bigger telescope, and we need it to be a space telescope. Um, we need that because... The contrast between a planet and a G-type star is so, so large. The star is so bright. The planet's so faint. We need a very large telescope to do that. But we're thinking about it. We're thinking about that. We have ideas. We have plans. A um, number of different groups have been doing studies. NASA has been sponsoring studies for two large telescope concepts. Um, and my own organization, Aura, has also done a study um, and come up with some ideas of the kind of telescope we would need to answer that question. 
And this is this is fascinating, right? Because when we say, okay, we have these new things coming, you know, from the ground, from the atmosphere, you're saying, okay, look, if we have a star and a planet and the star is very faint, right? You mentioned M dwarfs. These are the the most common class of star in the universe. They're they're com- commonly called red dwarf stars and they make up somewhere around 75 to 85% of all the stars in the galaxy. So these are really really common stars. Proxima Centauri, the closest star to us is a red dwarf star. But the thing about Proxima Centauri is if you look at it with a telescope and you compare it to a star like our sun, well, you'll find Proxima Centauri is significantly smaller than our sun. It's probably only about 10% the, the radius of our sun, but it's also so much fainter than our sun. Proxima Centauri is maybe only one one thousandth of the visible light luminosity of our sun. So when you're saying, okay, we're trying to pick out the signature of a planet against this star, well, if you want an Earth-sized planet or an Earth-like planet or a planet even roughly close to Earth, when you're comparing it to a star like our sun versus comparing it to a star like Proxima Centauri, you need to be an extra factor of a thousand sensitive to the light or the transit signature, or whatever it is that's coming from the planet. And for that, you say we not only need to go to space, we need to build a big, sensitive telescope in space to be capable of that. From from an astronomer's perspective, can you explain to us why those two factors of having a big, sensitive telescope and also having that telescope be in space are such important factors? Sure. Well, I think you actually did a really good job of explaining why we need a sensitive telescope. Um, and that is because we are trying to see the light from a planet, which is a relatively small object on the cosmic scale, next to a star. And the planet and star are far away. So you need to have the collecting area of a large telescope to be able to focus the light from that very dim planet into our sensitive cameras and spectrographs. So that's why it needs to be big. Why does it need to be in space? One of the things that we gain from a space telescope is we gain stability. Um, even with our finest, clearest skies on the surface of the Earth, we are still looking through Earth's atmosphere. And there is turbulence. Even in the most still atmosphere, there is some level of turbulence. And that turbulence causes, effectively causes noise to be introduced into our, our data, if you will. And so when we have a telescope in space, we do not have that turbulence. And therefore, the stability of the, of the images is, is much, uh, much more amenable to these incredibly faint, incredibly sensitive objects that we're looking for. Now, that's not to say that there aren't sources of motion for a large space telescope. Just the physical size of the telescope itself tends to create small amounts of, of jitter and motion. And if we have a sun shield, like some of our large designs have, you know, that's a big thing that flops around. However, we do use techniques called adaptive optics um, that take out uh, that we can use to take out that jitter that we get and really focus in on the truly stable um, signal that we get from space. So 
we need both. I, I, I don't want to have your listeners think that if we build a space telescope, we don't need a ground-based telescope. We are in the process of building very large ground-based telescopes, like the 30-meter class telescopes. There's three different ones. Europeans are doing one, and the U.S. has two different concepts going. And those are much larger than any telescope that we can currently envision building in space. And they will be very good for sensing uh, planets next to the fainter stars. So the M stars, the M dwarfs that we talked about, um, these 30-meter class telescopes from the ground will be really pretty good for looking at planets near those. But if we want to look at planets near brighter stars, stars like our own, that's when the space telescopes are critical. Right. And this is, this is, as I understand it, largely due to the fact that when you have such a brighter star, like a star like our sun or an even brighter star than our sun, like an F-class star, you might start saying, okay, if this light comes through the atmosphere, it's going to spread out just a little bit. Even if it's just a little bit, though, you have a thousand times more light spreading out from that than you would from an M-class star. So no matter how good your adaptive optics are, right, no matter how good your you build your adaptive mirror to say, okay, we know that's a point-like object up there, and we're going to reconstruct whatever signal we get to make the mirror the right shape – we might still, in fact, you, you, you know, when you do the math, you find that you very likely will lose the signal of an Earth-sized planet or even a super-Earth-sized planet at the right distance from, our st from its star to have liquid water on the surface. Not so with the M-class stars. One thing that I know we do today, um, which I think is interesting and maybe you'd want to talk about a little bit is if we take a telescope like Hubble in space and say, okay, we're going to go look for to try and directly image a planet around a star or we're going to try and directly image a very faint object near a very bright object. Hubble is capable of doing that, but oftentimes we'll come back down to the ground to something like the Keck telescopes in order to do spectroscopic imaging of that. Is that something we might still be able to do with the next generation of telescopes? I think that's exactly right, Ethan. Uh, all these telescopes are synergistic. They work together. Um, we, can, we can find some of these planets with Hubble, but Hubble is only a two-meter mirror. That's a small mirror that for collecting light from a planet. That's why we pair it with the Keck, which is an effective 10-meter aperture. So, you know, five times uh, larger in diameter and many much more larger in terms of area. And so they work synergistically together. And so when we look at the next generation, we're talking about a similar pairing. If we have a 30-meter class telescope on the ground, what is the aperture that we want to have for our space telescope? For, for me, uh, the science that, that I want to see accomplished in the coming decades, we, I believe that we need something of the order of, of, of a 10 to 12 meter class space telescope. So that's like imagine uh, 18 Hubbles all sort of tiled together into one super Hubble. That's Hubble on steroids. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, that's what we need for that next generation. 
Now, that's that's really fascinating. So I know that there are four large flagship concept missions that have currently been proposed for the next, uh, we call it Astro 2020, which is the decadal survey, where this is really where we're going to map out the course of what are the astronomical priorities, what are the priorities of the astronomy community for not the next decade, but the decade after. This is for the decade of the 2030s. What is what is the roadmap look like? What are the priorities? priorities like. And one of these missions is the largest one that's proposed. It's also the most expensive one proposed, and it's called Louvoir. And I've seen designs that are anywhere from about a an eight or nine meter class telescope all the way up to about a 15 or 16 meter class telescope, where they plan to do a very large segmented design, sort of like a, a James Webb on steroids, except designed for this ultraviolet optical infrared views, the same types of views that Hubble takes, except with a much, much larger, not only collecting area, but a much higher resolution. If you were able to get that, Heidi, if you were able to get your hands on an observatory like this in space, what types of measurements are we now talking about that everyone should get excited about? So first of all, with a telescope of that size, you would have the ability to look at probably dozens of Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. In other words, Earth analogs, and be able to characterize the atmospheres of those those Earth-like planets to ask the question, is there a signature of any kind of disequilibrium on those planets that could be indicative of biological processes. Or if you don't want to use biological, you could use uh, a a techno-signature, look for pollution in the atmosphere. Look for something that you could not explain by classic chemical equilibrium. All right. So dozens, I'm, dozens of them. The, the, but the, that's my point is it's dozens. It's enough observations of these objects that you could actually start to make a statistical argument about the probability of life elsewhere. And that's what's interesting. You know, if we look at one, maybe yes, maybe no. If it's the answer is no, it's like, okay, well, let's go to the next one. Well, let's look at two or three or five. Five may not be enough. If we don't know what the probability of life is elsewhere, and if the probability of life forming elsewhere is very small, then you might need to look at many dozens of planets before you get that lucky one that has the signature you're looking for. And that's what really drives the size of of the Louvoir concept to be as large as it is. and, and I just wanted to say, too, we're talking a lot about exoplanets and characterizing life because, as we said, that's a big question. But what what excites me about a concept like Louvoir is that not only will you address that question of whether or not we can find life on Earth-like planets around sun-like stars, but there's a vast swath of other astrophysics and planetary science that you can do with the same facility. So it's a complete game changer, much in the way 
that Hubble has been a game changer for us over the last 25 years that I've been using Hubble. No, and I think I think that's an incredibly good analogy because when I think about Louvoir as a cosmologist, I start thinking about, wow, like with an observatory like that, imagine all the things we can measure. We can start measuring the internal structure of every galaxy in the universe. We can start measuring the rotation curve of every spiral galaxy in the universe and seeing if it looks like the dark matter fraction evolves with time. We can start measuring, you know basically take what you imagine Hubble to be and increase its light gathering power by a factor of 50, which means an observation that would have taken you two months before you can make in less than a day with Louvoir, and also increase the resolution by a factor of maybe seven or eight. So now you're saying, okay, whereas Hubble was able to see things which are maybe, you know, two or three pixels across right now, in a Louvoir telescope, it'll be 20 picture, pixels across and also 20 pixels up and down. So instead of getting something where you're saying, okay, maybe I'm looking at something that's five or six pixels on my image. No, now I'm looking at something that's 400 pixels on my image. And this is actually, wow, I can get a whole lot more information from that. And that's just from the cosmology. Like you said, you can also study stars and star forming regions and planetary systems and not just Earth analogs, but also systems that are extremely different from Earth's and systems that we don't have here, like super Earths or hot ice giants. And that, that seems like a oxymoron to me as a hot ice giant, but we know these exist. <laughs> Yeah, and um, you know, I, I'm not a cosmologist, but let me share with you one cosmological thing that blew my mind when we were studying this concept of a 12-meter class space telescope. And that is, if you think about the, the spatial resolution that you want to get on some of these spiral galaxies as they move further and further out into the solar system, um, you know, you get... You know, sort of there's a characteristic length. There was like 100 parsec scale that'll allow you to really zoom in on some of the spiral arms and pull out some of the star forming regions in the spiral arms and truly resolve them. And, you know, what I was thinking about this is the further and further you get, the smaller they get, right? And so at some point you'd think, well, it would get beyond the reach of even your large telescope. Oh, but that's not how <laughs> angular not diameter distance works. Yeah, well, it's what's, it, what happens is that because the universe ex is accelerating, that when you get further out, the distances actually expand, they get larger, so your objects get larger, and so you basically get this 100 parsec resolution throughout the entire universe. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I but love it has that. To, it's just amazing. That and so like... I'm not a cosmologist. I mean, I don't, that's not what, that's not the science I do, but just the idea that you can build a telescope large enough to, to get that kind of spatial resolution throughout all the universe. That's, to me, that was mind blowing. Uh, let me bring it all the way back though to our solar system. Um, the reason I have been thinking about, um, large space telescopes, the reason I use Hubble is that we can't send spacecraft to every single object in our solar system. In fact, the objects that I study the most, Uranus and Neptune, we've only ever sent 
what spacecraft to? And it was a flyby, and it was technology. It was launched while I was still in high school. It was in the 1970s, right? Awesome. The Voyager 2 flybys, I loved them. I worked on them. But there's been no mission to Uranus or to Neptune since then. And so space telescopes and large ground-based telescopes have been the only tools that we have had to study these these planets and their moons and rings and magnetic fields. And so one reason I have been working on the James Webb Space Telescope for the last 20 years is I really want to know what is driving the chemistry in the upper atmospheres of Neptune and Uranus. Why are these two planets who are fraternal brothers so different? Um, why is that? What is driving that? And James Webb is a telescope that will allow me to try to understand those things. Um, and it'll be fantastic for many other objects in the solar system as well. Um, and then the Louvoir telescope, it'd be like having a Voyager flyby every day. Every day I would get Voyager flyby quality images of Neptune. I would understand what is driving the formation and dissolution of these very large great dark spots on Neptune? Right now, I can barely detect them with Hubble. And I know they come and go, but I can't tell you why. And I don't have enough detail, even with the best Hubble images and the best Keck images, to really understand what is the process that is driving the changes that we see. You know, I, I think I it's fascinating as, 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 as definitely a not planetary astronomer. Um, it's interesting to see how, uh, how people talk about the features on these worlds differently as time goes on. Because after the first Jupiter flyby, I was told that Uranus was this, was this turquoise featureless world. It was this light blue color that was just totally featureless because that's what the Voyager data looked like. And lo and behold, as we've learned more and more about it, we were like, actually, you know, Uranus, because it rotates on its side, sometimes at some points in its orbit, it has, say, what we might call the South Pole, even though when it rotates on its side, you want to be iffy with North and South. But I can say, well, its south pole faces towards the sun. And so it's sort of like, okay, the northern hemisphere is all winter all the time, and the southern hemisphere is all summer all the time. The planet Uranus looks very, very different at that point in its orbit than it does a quarter of an orbit later, where it seems to be like at Uranian equinox, where it's rotating on its side, and the north and south poles seem to be getting like that glancing amount of sunlight, but that because it rotates so quickly, it's actually having night, day, night, day everywhere on that world in just a few hours. So I think when you're looking, what, what do you see that's so different? Well, I'll tell you, when Uranus is in that sideways configuration to us, a time of year we call equinox, um, that took place in 2007. And we were watching with Hubble and with the Keck telescope and the Gemini telescope. And what we saw is that when the sunlight was falling on Uranus uh, in a Neptune-like pattern, in other words, the whole planet was illuminated, then suddenly Uranus turned Neptunish. Um, it had 
uh, bands that were very obvious. It developed a great dark spot uh, that didn't last very long, but it was clearly visible in both the Hubble and the Keck images. It had all kinds of dynamic cloud features bubbling up in the mid-latitudes. Um, the, the polar haze that was capping the southern hemisphere during the Voyager flyby started to thin. The northern hemisphere, which we had never seen because it was in total darkness, when it turned into the sunlight, we suddenly saw polar cloud structure on Uranus that was very reminiscent of the Saturn's cloud structure, polar cloud structure, that the Cassini spacecraft had seen. And so there was, there's, there's had been a mythology about Uranus and, and it being dead and, and uninteresting that was solely based on its season when Voyager flew by. And um, it's really a very interesting and dynamic atmosphere, at least when it is at equinox. Now, it's past equinox now, and we are continuing to, to watch it um, as best we can. And the question is, that we don't know the answer to yet, is when it gets to the other solstice, when the North Pole is pointing at the sun, will it all turn off again? Will it look like it did when Voyager 2 flew by in 1986? We don't know the answer to that because the time scales are so long. I mean, it's, its year is 84 Earth years. And so that is a little bit longer than the typical professional planetary astronomer career. Um, <laughs> the work that, the work that I've been doing to try to understand this planet relies heavily on work that was done in the 1950s and 60s. Even though they didn't have the imaging systems that we had now, they were able to make measurements of the brightness of the planet. And I even go all the way back, this is going to laugh, but I go all the way back to the 1800s when people had built good telescopes and were looking through them with their eyes and drawing pictures of what they saw. And when they look at, you look at these records, um, Dolfus's drawings, um, they show features on Uranus. So if I if I do the math on that, that would roughly correspond to uh, two, no, about one and a half Uranian orbits ago. So you're roughly talking about the last time, uh, the last time that we got the uh, configuration that we'll that we'll likely see again in what in maybe 2028 when Uranus is at 20. solstice again. Well, it's, it's every 40, every 42 years, right? Because it's the, the total year is 84 years. Oh, okay. But if it, if it's symmetric, it's every 42 years, right? That you have to look for this pattern of total illumination of the sunlight. So the night, the mid 1960s was a time that we could have looked, but people weren't looking at Uranus then, and we didn't have the tools to look at Uranus then. In that period of time, everybody was using photography. And in photography, it it washes out this kind of structure. Right, because it's a time average, isn't it? Exactly. The reason that the observers in the in the eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, could do this is the eye is an extremely sensitive and rapid um, recorder of information. Right. So, in that brief moment where the atmospheric qualities are pristine, and you get a glimpse of of Uranus. 
that isn't distorted by the atmosphere. They captured that image and they would draw a picture of it and they would show belts, they would show dark spots and bright spots. And that's what we're seeing now. Um, so it, it's, it's fascinating to, um, have to rely on that. It's hard though because, yeah, it's hard to write scientific papers based on pictures that were drawn by hand because they're so, um, Subject to interpretation. I mean, that was one of the major things about um, moving into the realm of photography and then CCD, electronic cameras, is the reproducibility, crucial for science, reproducibility. And when you're just drawing pictures from what you think you see looking through an eyepiece, you don't have that reproducibility. But, um, you know, it's I find it intriguing. Let me put it that way. And I'm hoping that in uh, the next... Uh, equinox of Uranus, some, roughly 40 years from now, it won't be me, but it'll be some young person, someone who's maybe not even born yet, but, uh, but, but she will be at some fantabulous space telescope and she will be looking at Uranus, um, and trying to understand its, its seasonal variability and she'll have to go back to the papers that we're writing right now with Hubble and Keck and say, well, you know, they were starting to see something there, but now we have the tools to do it right. Yeah. And one thing that I think is going to be really fascinating is that with the upcoming launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, we're not going to be just looking in the optical part of the spectrum or near to the optical part of the spectrum. We're going to be able to look at these much longer wavelength features. And for those of you who've ever been on an infrared camera, you know that infrared measures heat and it can measure heat down to very cold temperatures. Now, Uranus is, you know, when we're viewing it at these visible wavelengths, those visible wavelengths correspond to temperatures that are significantly higher than the average temperature of Uranus or Neptune or or these outer planets. But when we start looking at infrared wavelengths and not just near infrared, but going to mid infrared wavelengths, we can see entirely different features on these worlds than we can see in visible light. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so the planets will look different with uh, Webb than they will look to a Hubble camera. Um, and we have hints of what they, they might look like with some of our ground-based telescopes. Who There are some ground-based telescopes that do have some mid-infrared cameras, very limited wavelengths. Uh, uh, the, our Earth's atmosphere absorbs a lot of the light, so you have to look in certain windows um, but you can get some hints of what these planets are going to look like at those um, mid-infrared wavelengths. And another aspect about mid-infrared that's extremely important, not only for planetary science, but for many other kinds of astrophysics, is that a lot of interesting molecular transitions take place in the mid-infrared. A lot of molecules that we care a lot about, like methane, uh, carbon dioxide, um, water, um, these molecules tend to have rotational and vibrational modes um, that tend to emit light in the mid-infrared. And so these are good wavelengths to be studying things like where is the methane really coming from on 
Uranus or Neptune? Um, is it coming from the poles? Is it coming from mid-latitude cloud activity? Is it coming from belts or zones? Um, by looking in the mid-infrared and picking our wavelengths carefully, we can tune to the specific molecules that we're interested in. And that's not only true for planets. Like I said, if you're looking in molecular clouds, or you're looking in the star formation region, the mid-infrared regions have a wealth of wonderful molecular transitions that will be really powerful for a, a, a large number of astrophysical studies. Now, one of the things that, that we haven't gotten to talk about yet, but which I'm fascinated by, is all of these giant planets that we know of, even, even Neptune, they all have... Uh, a very rich system of moons around them. And these moons have a huge variety of different properties, and in some cases, different origins from one another. When I when I think about Jupiter, you know, I, I tend to go to the biggest ones. So I think about the four Galilean moons around Jupiter, and how different they are from each other with Io being the closest and actually physically being torn apart by tides so thoroughly that Jupiter tidal forces uh, cause volcanic resurfacing of Io's surface every few hundred or few thousand years. It's, it's so fast that that's the only world we know of that doesn't have any craters on it as far as we can tell. Europa seems to be the next one out, and that one has possibly a subsurface ocean that could be um, home to life like we find around the seafloor around hydrothermal vents. And then Ganymede and Callisto are, you know, Ganymede's the largest moon in the solar system. It has its own atmosphere, um, but it's farther out. We don't think there's any any that much interesting going on there or on Callisto, but still they're interesting worlds in their own right. We look to Saturn, Triton, I'm sorry, Titan around Saturn is the second largest moon in the solar system and has a thicker atmosphere than Earth's. And then we come to the gas giants, or sorry, the ice giants, and these two worlds, Uranus and Neptune, I feel like their lunar systems couldn't be more different. That Uranus, like like the others, like Jupiter and Saturn, has a wide variety of moons. It has five relatively large ones that are maybe the size of the next moon tier down for Jupiter and and Saturn. Uh, but it has five of those, but no giant one. But then you come to Neptune, and you find that it has one dominant moon that comes very close to the planet itself. This is Triton. But Triton is all wrong, to have formed with Neptune. It rotates in the wrong direction. It revolves in the wrong direction. It has the same composition as these other giant worlds we find in the Kuiper Belt, Pluto and Eris, except it's even bigger. We have learned so much about these worlds. I should let you tell us so I don't, I don't tell people the wrong information. What went on with these systems to give them such different moons? A lot of things went on and a lot of things are going on. Uh, we're not in a steady state by any stretch of the imagination. Let's start at the back and work in. Let's talk a little bit about Triton. Um, as you said, a Triton is uh, a, a very strange moon. It's, it's going in a backwards direction around the planet. Its orbit is tilted at a pretty radical uh, angle. And we're fairly confident that Triton is a captured object. 
that Triton is a Kuiper Belt object, like Pluto, almost identical in size to Pluto, that at one point in its history got too close to Neptune and was captured by Neptune's gravitational pull and went into orbit around Neptune. When that happened, it's likely that there was some processing that went on of this object. Um, Triton's surface, we know from the Voyager 2 flyby, is quite young. There are vast regions of that surface that do not have craters. They have very strange terrains. There's one huge swath we call the cantaloupe terrain because the surface of Triton looks like the surface of a cantaloupe. And perhaps most intriguing about Triton is that in its southern polar region, the Voyager 2 flyby saw active cryovolcanoes. Triton is an active moon. And people know about Europa, and they know about Enceladus, Saturn's moon, and, and they say those are active moons. They have jets of water shooting off them. But back in 1989, we found jets of material shooting out of the South Pole of Triton, very tightly collimated jets of black stuff. And usually in the solar system, when you say black, you mean organic, has carbon. So there's carbon-rich material spewing out of jets in the southern pole of Triton. And you can look at a picture of Triton if you Google Triton um, on, you know, pull up some images in the southern hemisphere, you'll see all these little black splotches. And that's a, that's where these volcanoes, cryovolcanoes, ice volcanoes have been shooting out this black junk. And then the winds, Triton has an atmosphere. The winds spew this stuff down field, making these streak-like patterns all over the surface. Now, if someone was was excited about this, um, can you give us an idea of how good of a resolution we would be able to get with, say, a Louvoir-like telescope as compared to what we were able to see up close from the Voyager 2 flyby of Triton? So, uh, even with a fabulous telescope like Louvoir, Louvoir is going to be close to Earth. You know, it'll be in the Earth-Sun L2 point. It will not be at Triton. And so you will not have the quality to resolve these individual dark streaks as we saw with the Voyager 2. Um, we, we will probably be able to resolve large surface features. So, uh, so you know, remember the pictures that, that the New Horizons spacecraft of Pluto, they saw like the bright white heart and then darker regions. We will be able to resolve those bright and dark regions on Triton and Pluto with something like Louvoir. But as to seeing these dark streaks, we need a mission. You have to be there to see them. They're, they're not big enough to see even with the largest space telescope that we can imagine right now. No, and I, I like that. I like that point because we talk about, oh, I can build my telescope bigger and I can build it bigger and bigger and bigger, but there's no substitute for going closer. If you want no. to see something um, from a thousand times or 10,000 times as far away, you would have to build a telescope thousand or 10,000 times as large. And we're not going to do that. We're excited about Louvoir that it's almost 10 times the size of Hubble. 
So what Hubble can see, we can get maybe 10 times the resolution if we built it 10 times as large. But there's nothing like having a dedicated mission to Uranus and Neptune. And I know you've been a pioneer in trying to push for one of those. If we were able to do that, if we were able with today's technology to design a mission to go fly by orbit Uranus and photograph its moons and measure them or go on to Neptune or do both, what would we learn now that we wouldn't have even known to ask at the time of the Voyager missions? Huh. Well, certainly in the in the case of um, both Uranus and Neptune, one of the things we didn't appreciate prior to Voyager was how dynamic the atmospheres of these ice giants are. And so that is something that we would really benefit tremendously from having another flyby or even better, an orbiter at either one of those places. Another thing about missions, there are measurements we simply cannot make remotely. For example, one of the uh, important questions um, to understand how planetary systems form is to understand where the planets themselves formed in the, the solar nebula, the, the dust of, sw of swirling gas and dust around the nascent star. Uh, one of the things we know for sure now is that where Uranus, well, well where Neptune formed is not where it is right now. Uh, we know that Neptune has migrated outwards in the solar system. We know that because we can see these Kuiper Belt objects, Pluto's 10,000 friends and relations out there, and some of these objects are in resonant orbits with Neptune, and the only way they could have gotten there is if Neptune moved out in its orbit and then set up these resonances with these objects. So where did Neptune form? How will we know? The only way to know is to get into its atmosphere and measure some of the inert molecules, these noble gases, xenon, neon, argon, these are things that don't react with other things, and so they sort of preserve the, the primitive characteristics of, of where they formed. Um, so we want probes into these atmospheres. Just like we sent a probe into Jupiter's atmosphere, the Galileo spacecraft did that. Um, we have never sent a probe into Saturn, though, and we have not sent probes into Uranus or Neptune. That's something that um, the next class of space missions, that's something we really want them to do. Send probes in so we can actually sample the chemistry, taste the chemistry of those planets to try to understand where they formed. Another thing that we can only do while we're there, either in a flyby or in an orbiting situation, is is uh, map out the gravitational field of the object. Um, we want to understand the density distribution inside the planet. We can't send probes all the way in, um, but by looking at the, the shape of the gravitational field and, and the higher-order gravitational moments, we can infer the mass distribution and mass density inside the planet. Now, we try to do that in other ways. All of the plant, the, uh, all of the giant planets have ring systems. So we look at the rings and we look at how they precess with time, how they wobble as they slowly make their way around the planets, and we can infer some of the um, basic components of the gravitational field from that. We also look at the shape. These planets are not perfectly round. 
they're oblate and they're kind of, you know, they're squashed on the poles and then wide at the equator. So from the oblateness and from the rings and the moon motions, we get some sense of what the interior's like. But nothing beats having an orbiter. <laughs> nothing beats it to really map out that um, gravitational moments. And the last thing I'll mention um, is the magnetic fields. The magnetic fields of Uranus and Neptune, we learned from the Voyager 2 flybys, are wacko. They are strange. They are not aligned <laughs> with the, the rotation poles. They're tilted like 47 degrees, like it's random. And they're not centered on the planet. They're offset a sizable fraction of the planet. And so you don't get beautiful circular aurorae like you do on Earth or on Jupiter or Saturn. You get these weird blobby aurorae that migrate around the planet in different places. We've seen that with Hubble, actually, on Uranus. We've seen aurorae on Uranus with Hubble in the ultraviolet, and they're just weird. They don't look anything like aurorae do on the other planets. And so um, that's another thing we'd want to learn. No, and that's really strange because you might think, oh, well, you know, Jupiter rotates kind of, you know, kind of in the same plane that it orbits the sun, and so does Saturn, and so does Neptune, and Uranus doesn't. But then why are Neptune's aurorae not like Jupiter and Saturn's aurorae? So Yeah, what a great question. Yeah. <laughs> we want to know that. Why? Why is that? Let me we were talking about moons, so let me go let me go back a little bit. I wanna Please I do. talk a little bit about Triton. Um, let's just jump back to Saturn. Um, Saturn's moon Titan. Uh, you mentioned it. Titan is this big moon around Saturn and, um, thick atmosphere. One bar, like sort of the same pressure atmosphere that we have here on the Earth. Uh, lakes, <laughs> but these lakes are not water. These are lakes of hydrocarbons. You know, could be ethane, could be methane, could be weird mixture. Um, and we've seen that uh, from the Cassini spacecraft when it was in orbit around there. It was able to do radar measurements off these flat surfaces. And so we know there are lakes there. Really fascinating place. Um, the European Space Agency provided a probe that was launched on the Cassini mission. And it landed on Titan um, and was able to take pictures on the way down showing riverbeds, uh, rivers of hydrocarbon, not water, um, and landed on the surface, um, took images of rocks. on. The, it was a very strange surface. So right now, um, there's a mission that has just been approved for further study. Fascinating mission by uh, led by the Applied Physics Lab. Um, Zibby Turtle uh, is the PI, and uh, she named this mission Dragonfly. And this thing is going to be a quadcopter, <laughs> a little, little drone that's going to fly around in the atmosphere of Titan. I mean, crazy. Isn't that wonderful? And I'm sure it'll have cameras. It's going to take pictures of these lakes and riverbeds. And gosh, I'm really excited about Dragonfly. You know, Titan is is such an unusual world um, for having such a thick atmosphere. We I don't think we know of any other moon in the solar system that has an atmosphere as thick or as dense as Titan's, which makes it ideal for something like a quadcopter. I also thought it was fascinating when I learned that based on the atmospheric composition of Titan, which is mostly, uh, which is largely hydrocarbons, uh, you could bring along a tank of oxygen 
And that would be like rocket fuel. Like oxygen <laughs> on Titan would be like rocket fuel because you could just burn it with what's already in the atmosphere the same way we could burn hydrocarbons like fuel with our oxygen-rich atmosphere. Uh, I had also remember reading that when the Huygens probe that's the probe that Cassini launched that landed on Titan, uh, landed on the surface, it was able to take audio recording and that you were able to hear the sounds of what they imagine is a hydrocarbon waterfall on the surface <laughs> of Titan. Uh, so when you talk about, oh, you're excited about what they're going to find on this world, I think based on what we have had suggested to us already, we're in for some really fascinating things with an entirely different chemistry than we're used to here on the surface of Earth. Yeah, that's right. We we here on Earth have what we call, you know, the uh, the water cycle, the hydrological cycle. There we call it a methanological cycle, right? It's it's a uh, it's got clouds, it's got rain, it's got lakes, um, and and it cycles back and forth. Uh, but it's not water. You know, they have storms on on Titan. So one of the things we'll likely do is when when Dragonfly is there, we'll be looking with our telescopes to try to predict where storms might be to keep that poor little quadcopter away from the worst of the storms, right? And it's fascinating to think about using our assets in that way, using the telescopes to work with the spacecraft and vice versa. Yeah, uh, that's... yeah let's talk. Wait, I got some more moons to talk about, though. Let me let me jump back. <laughs> I want to well, before we leave uh, Saturn, um, we should talk about um, we should talk about Enceladus. Sure. Enceladus is a, a little moon. And it's embedded in one of the rings of Saturn. And this particular ring is a very blue colored ring. And one of the things that the Cassini spacecraft noted about Enceladus is it was able to see jets of water shooting out of the south pole of Enceladus. Um, stripes there, uh, they call nicknamed tiger stripes, although they're blue and white, not really uh, tiger colored, um, but they're stripes. And those stripes seem to be the source of these jets, um, of material, of water. Um, they also were able to do infrared measurements with an infrared camera on Cassini. And those tiger stripes were warm. And so you had the combination of warm stripes and jets superposed on them. So we're quite confident that that is where this material is coming from. The question that is is not yet fully answered is is this a a lake uh, or a, a subsurface ocean like we have hypothesized is on Europa, or is this a localized uh, lake or sea just under those tiger stripes? Um, and there there's evidence going both directions on those, um, and I'm. I'll, I'll admit I, I, I'm not up to date on what the most recent interpretation is. Um, either way, it's intriguing that there is active water spewing uh, from the South Pole of Enceladus. So that's a another astrobiological target. If you're talking about places in the solar system other than Earth, where you would go to look uh, for for uh, evidence of bacterial life, you know, in addition to Europa, Enceladus is is right up there. Um, and so is Neptune's moon Triton because of those active cryovolcanoes. There's a lot of possibility out there in the solar system. 
No, and I think that's fascinating. And I think it's also wonderful how you are so willing to admit, you know, here are some ideas we have about this. Here are some possibilities we know of, but the solution is not something I can tell you right now. The solution is something we need more and better data for in order to know. And that, yeah, here are some proposed ideas and proposed missions that we could use to actually find out the answers to those questions. I think the last I had heard, uh, they had speculated that I believe it's the E-ring of Saturn that's coincident with Enceladus was actually caused, is actually created by Enceladus itself, and that that moon of Saturn is the most reflective moon in terms of its albedo or re reflectivity in the entire known solar system. That's right. It is embedded in that blue ring. Uh, but let me tell you uh, something um interesting and mysterious that you may not know. When we were watching the planet Uranus at its equinox in 2007, it was a wonderful time to study the Uranus ring system uh, because when it's sideways to you, when the ring system is sideways to you, uh, there's more optical depth if you're looking along the ring. It looks thicker, so it's easier to, to detect the ring than when it's face on. And so, in fact, Hubble's space telescope, looking at the rings of Uranus, was actually able to discover two new rings that we didn't know about um, because we were able to see them when they were edge on to us. We could see the, the, the ends of the rings. We also looked for those same rings with the Keck telescope uh, because we were using both to try to study them. And one of the rings we were able to see and the other one we could not see. Now, Hubble was looking hmm. at a blue wavelengths. Keck was looking at red wavelengths. And so by combining these two telescopes, we're able to figure out the colors of the rings. And the ring that we could not see with Keck in the red is a blue-colored ring. And in fact, the blueness and redness of these two rings of Uranus are almost identical to the blue and red rings that you see around Saturn. But you just told hmm. me, and it's true, that the blue ring of Saturn is probably caused by Enceladus spewing fresh water out of its south pole. So, I ask you, what's causing the blue ring around the planet Uranus? There well, is. If I were, if I yeah. were to hazard a guess, because I, I hope the answer is we don't know. Uh, I would, I would assume that there either is or was a moon of Uranus that was coincident with where that ring is now, and either that moon is the source of that ring, or that now destroyed moon provided the material that now makes up that ring, but. I don't know if either of those is correct or if that's just uh, what I think based on the limited amount of information that I have, which is insufficient. Well, the amount of information you have is very close to the amount of information that all of us have too, right? Those of us <laughs> who study that. And in fact, there is a tiny moon embedded in that blue ring. It's the moon Mab. But Mab is an itty bitty, teeny, tiny little moon. And we really don't think it's likely that Mab has an ocean and is active 
like Enceladus. Um, so your hypothesis that perhaps there was a different moon there, but what would cause the moon to go away, you know, without significantly disrupting the ring? How do you get rid of a moon without disrupting the the remaining blue ring? It's a mystery, Ethan. <laughs> I don't know yeah. the answer, but it's fascinating. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, these are the kinds of questions that, um, until we discovered that, blue ring in in 2007 no one would even have hypothesized that there would be blue and red rings around uranus and you know people assume that the blue ring is caused by enceladus but maybe there's a different explanation maybe it's both enceladus and maybe whatever process is driving that blue ring around uranus maybe that's also active there at saturn we, we actually just don't no. And so that's one reason that we continue to explore um, with our telescopes and um, continue to hope for having missions to these worlds because, you know, a, a mission to Uranus, an orbiter mission to Uranus, it would, um, well, it would answer a lot of questions. But I'll be honest, it'll raise new questions too. That's one thing we always learn from our missions that we, we go to answer certain questions and we often do, but then we're left with even more questions. So, um, well, we'll just have to answer those too. Yeah. I mean, there's, that's, that's the whole wonderful thing about science is that it doesn't ever end. As you learn more, you're pushing the frontiers farther and you're uncovering new questions that you didn't even know you needed to ask. Mm -hmm. Now, I know, I know we're going a little over on time, but if you're all right with doing so, um, one of the wonderful things that you got to be an active scientist for and during was um, this wonderful event that took place in the mid-1990s where a comet came into the solar system and impacted Jupiter. This was Comet Schumacher-Levy 9, and it is, as far as I know, it is the most extreme event we've had of this type in our solar system over recorded human history. Um, can you tell us about the comet, the impact, and what it was like to... I'll just, you know, I'll give it away here, what it was like to be in charge of the Hubble observations of this impact during that time. Well, it was a, it was an amazing time 25 years ago. Um, so this comet, um, Shoemaker-Levy 9, we think it had been captured by Jupiter quite a number of decades earlier. Um, when we looked at its orbit um, and did some simulations of how long it had been orbiting Jupiter, um, we speculate that it, it might have been captured um, sort of in the, the late 1920s, perhaps, um, and then in orbit around Jupiter, but its orbit was decaying, and so it was getting closer and closer. At the time it was discovered by Jean and Carolyn Shoemaker and David Levy, um, it was on its last pass. And so when they computed its trajectory, they found out it was not going to make it past Jupiter. And we, we found that out late 1993, and the collision was predicted to take place um, in late July of 1994. So we had about six months warning, and we had literally no idea what was going to happen. Or maybe I phrased that poorly. We had 
many ideas of what was going to happen, <laughs> but no idea of which of them was right. And so um, I was working at MIT at that time, and one of my colleagues, Tim Dowling, um, had been running simulations of Jupiter's atmosphere. So he did a simulation where he introduced a perturbation, like like something hit it, and asked what would happen. And in his computer simulation, it set up ripples, like ripples in a pond. Like if you threw a rock in a pond, you get the ripples moving outwards. And they were big. And he said, Heidi, Heidi, we can we can see these with the Hubble Space Telescope. You know, and I'm like, yeah, really? I, you know, I was skeptical. I didn't think that a comet, even a big comet hitting giant Jupiter would make any effect at all. But he said, yeah, Heidi, we can do it. He'd write me a proposal. He was a theorist, right? I was an observer. <laughs> he said, write me a proposal to look with Hubble. So I did. I, you know, I used his picture. I wrote a proposal. And then um, a few weeks go by, and then I got a phone call saying, we have selected your proposal. And I'm like, yay. Uh, and they said, we've also selected six others, and we want you to be the team leader to put them all together into one observing program. And I was like, oh, I'd never used Hubble. <laughs> That's my secret. I, <laughs> and I had actually never published a paper on Jupiter either. <laughs> so um, I didn't quite know what I was doing, um, but that's okay. That never stops an intrepid scientist. Um, I reached out to everybody I knew who was doing modeling. In addition to this fellow who was modeling these ripples, uh, there were some folks who worked at Sandia National Laboratory who had been modeling big explosions really big explosions. Like they can't tell you why they're doing it or how they're doing it, but they're modeling big explosions. And so they had these ideas of these plumes that would be blown out of the atmosphere for thousands of miles, and maybe you could see them with Hubble, and, and other people had other crazy ideas, and like, well, okay. So we got a, a, I had a great team of people. We, we all sat down, we went through all the possibilities, we were given a total of 100 orbits of Hubble time. Each orbit is like 43 minutes. And it sounds like a lot, but we had a whole week of impacts. Uh, these things were coming in like one at a time. And so it took a week for all the fragments to get in. So uh, Hubble, 100 orbits didn't go very far. But we scheduled like the first impact, and then we scheduled for when that, that site would rotate onto the disk. And then it's the biggest one. We scheduled that one. We scheduled some spectroscopy to try to measure the chemistry of anything that might happen. And I, I have to say, again, we didn't know what was going to happen. So it was really difficult to design an observing program because how bright is it going to be? We don't know. What colors are it going to be? We don't know. How big is it going to be? We don't know. So, you know, you had to make educated guesses and whatever. So so there we, we had designed the whole program. It took us months to do, but you put it all together. You send the controls up to the space telescope, and then you sit and you wait. And so we were down in the basement of the Space Telescope Science Institute. We were waiting for the first images to come down. We heard that the Calar Alto Observatory had looked in the infrared and seen a flare at the time of the first impact. And everyone was like, ooh, something, maybe something happened. <laughs> maybe it's going to be real. And um, but that's all we'd heard. So we we're waiting and waiting, waiting. Finally, the first image, which if there was a plume, we would see this very 
tip of the plume sticking out behind Jupiter. And when that image loaded up, there was something there. And we're like, is, is that it? It looks like a moon. Is it a moon? I don't know. Is it a moon? Someone check. And then the next image came down, and it was not a moon. It was a plume, a top of a plume. And um, and then the next image, and it was a bigger plume. And then the next image, and the plume had collapsed onto the cloud tops. And then we waited for the next sequence, which showed the impact site rotating onto the disk. And, and there it was. It was this black spot, nothing like we'd ever seen before on Jupiter. And we're just like, wow, this is amazing. And we all like cheering and jumping up and down. And one girl, Melissa McGrath, she had, she broke out a bottle of champagne. She had like brought this champagne bottle and like, let's drink. So we did. It was amazing. And it was funny because during this whole thing that I just described to you down in the basement, there was a little TV monitor showing a press conference that was taking place one store, story up on the first floor. We were in the basement. And it was Gene Shoemaker and Carolyn Shoemaker and David Levy, the people who had discovered this comet. And they were having this press conference, and they were up there, and they were like, well, we don't really know what's happening. Maybe there's a report from Palo Alto. And we're down in the basement drinking champagne and jumping up and down. And I'm like, we're going to break in. And the NASA people are like, oh, no, we're not. I said, oh, yes, we are. We're going. I'm going up. I'm going up right now. And I, I just grabbed a printer copy off the printer of the impact, and I broke into the press conference like, because I couldn't let Gene and Carolyn and David not know. This is what we're seeing. This is your comet. It's it's spectacular. It's amazing, and uh, and that was the beginning. And it only got better from there. Uh, then we went on for the rest of the week and had major, huge impacts uh, that just were spectacular. Um, big black spots. Anybody with a small telescope or even a pair of binoculars could see these spots. But the Hubble images were absolutely spectacular. Just incredible. No, and these and these features on Jupiter, it wasn't like, you know, oh, you had an impact of a fragment and you saw this big black spot and then it went away the next time Jupiter rotated around again. These features lasted for a very long time, that they well, were still detectable a significant amount of time after the final fragment had finished impacting Jupiter. Yeah, that's right. Um, by the end of the week... Um, the whole band, one southern latitude, was just filled with this dark debris. And what this debris was, um, people ask me, like, didn't it make craters? I'm like, oh, you can't make craters in an atmosphere. Um, what, they, what it did is it, it, it basically caused giant explosions. And that heated the atmosphere up to temperatures of, of 40,000 degrees. And so the atmosphere of Jupiter basically got burned up into Jovian soot. And so you just had this debris, this sooty debris that was blasted out in these huge plumes and then collapsed down and rained down onto the tops of the clouds. So you had black soot marring the cloud tops of Jupiter. And that soot took a long time, as you said, to dissipate. It hung around for weeks. And in fact, some traces of, of chemical change in the upper atmosphere they lasted for years. In fact, 
There's uh, hydrogen cyanide, HCN, that was emplaced during this process, during these explosions, in the highest atmosphere of Jupiter, and we can still detect it today. It's still there at, at levels that are small, but detectable with our larger ground-based radio telescopes. And that's, and that's the kind of thing that gets me really excited for what you proposed about having a next generation space telescope or having a orbiter around, around Uranus or Neptune, because you're going to have events that are transient, that are unpredictable, and yet that will happen. And when you have the right tools in place and the right equipment in place and the right personnel who are willing to make those measurements and know how to make those measurements, uh, you can get way luckier than you ever would have imagined when you first designed these these instruments. Yeah, someone um, asked me uh, shortly after that, uh, you know, what could NASA have done better to be prepared for Shoemaker-Levy 9? And I'm like, NASA was totally prepared. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we had Hubble flying, we had the Galileo spacecraft en route to Jupiter, and it actually was far enough out in the solar system, it could see the impacts and it could see sort of the flares when these fragments hit, the bolides, if you will, as these fragments were going into the atmosphere. Every telescope on Earth was tuned up to look at, at, at Jupiter. Um, so, you know, we were ready for it. And, and, you know, like you, and you're right, uh, you know, surely such things happen on Saturn and Uranus and Neptune as well. Um, very hard to see them from the Earth, even with Hubble, because of the distance. They're just that much further, harder to see. But if we had an orbiter in place, it's possible we would detect these things happening there. And, you know, I want to say, too, one of the enduring lessons from Shoemaker-Levy 9 was that it made these impacts real to us. Uh, you know, we talk cavalierly about, oh, the asteroid that did in the dinosaurs 65 billion years ago must have been a big one, ha ha. But you know what? Uh, things are hitting the Earth every day, right? Most of them are tiny. They're pea-sized, right? Or a small stone. Um, sometimes bigger ones hit, uh, like Tunguska in 1908, Chelyabinsk, uh, that hit over Russia. Um, those were larger rocks, uh, but did considerable damage. But um, there's no guarantee that there's not an even bigger one that might hit Earth someday. And Shoemaker-Levy 9 made that very real, uh, to the point that Congress asked NASA to really up their game in looking for potentially hazardous asteroids, asteroids that might have the potential to hit the Earth, and, and, and if they did, cause considerable damage. And so there's been a significant change in the amount of work that we're doing um, on the ground, um, and even talking about with some of our space facilities, to look for potentially hazardous objects to find them before they find us. I can't overemphasize how important that is, and also how connected to the outer solar system that is, because... If it weren't for these large masses, 
you know, most of what's in the asteroid belt or the Kuiper belt would likely remain stable for a long time, but with the presence of Jupiter near the asteroid belt and the presence of Neptune near the Kuiper belt, these are likely the causes of what can occasionally slingshot an object from either of those two belts into the inner solar system. In fact, those of us who are gearing up for the Perseid meteor shower this August, um, we'll get to think about the comet that created it, Comet Swift-Tuttle, which crosses Earth's orbit in its orbital path and has been called by many the most dangerous object known to humanity. Because if you were to calculate the energy of the asteroid strike that wiped out the dinosaurs and how much energy this comet would deposit on Earth if it were to collide, you'll find that Swift-Tuttle impacts us, would impact us with approximately 26 times as much energy as the asteroid that did in the dinosaurs. Now, we're probably okay till at least the year 4400 or so, but on a cosmic time scale, that's not so far off. That's right. And uh, and just to, to reiterate, we're not worried about uh, Comet Swift-Tuttle hitting us. Um, there are other objects that are that we are tracking. None of them are scheduled to hit us, um, but we are continuing to look um, because you just never know, <laughs> um, especially for comets or things that are coming from the outer solar system um, that might have a hyperbolic orbit. We might not see it until it's on its way in, um, and we definitely want to find it on the way in, right, so that we can take evasive action if we need to. Um, and that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Heidi, I want to thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of your stories and knowledge. Um, I think your Shoemaker-Levy 9 story is probably the most excited I've gotten listening to a story in the four years I've been doing this podcast. I wanted to ask you... Uh, if there are any final thoughts or messages you'd like to leave our listeners with. I just want to thank you for the opportunity to share some of my stories. Um, I'm just one astronomer. There are many, many astronomers who have equally wonderful stories to tell. And um, it's been a real pleasure to have the opportunity to share my stories with you, Ethan. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And it's been my pleasure to have you here. I'd like to remind everyone that the Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and so I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go out to Cliff Elgin, Robert Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Paulina Barron, Stefan Bernegger, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Joseph Dvorak, Jeffrey David Maracini, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcik, Danny, Alexander Marius, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Chris Jukutas, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Black, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Randall Slemack, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, 
Ahmed Lee Comsey, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radilovic, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang. 